On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Luke Bretherton about political theology. So we cover topics like just what is political theology? What is politics? Is it necessary for the Christian to engage in politics? What are the distinctives of various historical political theologies? How they emerged, how they took shape, what they practiced, and how can I truly love my neighbor and keep my faith distinctives and much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. We're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, uh, but we don't want to just think, we want to think well. And so an effort to do that, we're hoping to foster an intellectual culture that is full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism, all while we think. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And today, I'm really looking forward to introducing you to Dr. Luke Bretherton. Uh, we actually live pretty close to each other, but... While the moment of recording this, I think everybody's still pretty much homebound at their house for the most part. So it would have been a delight to record this in person, but the, all the video software that they provide that we have access to is a pretty good, uh, I guess, replacement for now. So I'm looking forward to talking to him about the topic of political theology. I think in our current moment, no matter your faith tradition, no matter your prior commitments, you maybe don't even have a faith at all. I think political theology is a question that is on people's minds. What is it? Uh, what do different traditions have to bring to this discussion, this topic? And I think Dr. Bretherton has done a lot of deep thinking on this and has published significant amount of material on it. And I, I really am looking forward to picking his brain on this topic and getting uh, a better bearing on what this looks like. So before we jump into all of that, uh, Dr. Brotherton, why don't you just give us a quick introduction to who you are for those who may not be familiar with you, and then what exactly got you in to writing and researching on this topic? Jordan Brandon, great to be with you, and thanks for having me as a guest on the London Lyceum. Um, so yes, I'm Luke Brotherton. Uh, as you can tell, I'm not from North Carolina originally, so Londoner, born and bred, uh, moved here in about 2012 to work at Duke Divinity School as part of Duke University. Uh, where I'm the Robert E. Cushman Distinguished Professor of Moral and Political Theology. Um, it's a bit of a mouthful, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and and the name is kind of not insignificant in, in that the moral and political theology bit, I could talk a little bit more about the Robert E. Cushman bit, but the moral and political theology bit is significant in that we often think about politics and morals as separate things, or, or there's Christian ethics and political theology in, in my approach, more generally, I, I think about these two things together. We we can't be we can't think seriously about politics without taking questions of the kind of quality and character of relations, and that's questions of virtue and um, the kind of ends of politics. What is politics for? Is it for building a flourishing community? But equally, we often think about morals divorced from politics as if somehow we can be moral separate from the kind of material social economic political conditions which shape the 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 kind of possibilities of moral agency and so i think we've tended to have these two conversations separately i think they need to be run together and i think the christian tradition generally did run them together think about a figure like augustine or aquinas or or, or whoever um but yeah just let me say a little bit about kind of how i got into thinking about 
political theology. I, so I, I never intended to be an academic, actually. I kind of fell into it by accident. Um, and I, I worked, after I left university, I worked for from about 1991 onwards in Central Eastern Europe and a little bit beyond that in places like Russia and Armenia and, and, and other contexts. And this was the in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of Soviet communism. And I was working with churches in in that context. And what was fascinating about it was you had the the kind of collapse of the European Marxist project. So what was that? It, it was many things, but one of the things it was, it was supposed to be an emancipatory future in wholly secular terms. And in in place of that future, that future kind of didn't come to be and it turns out it was kind of totalitarian and created all sorts of both, you know, all forms of oppression and, and destruction of nature and things. Um, but in into Russian to fill the vacuum, we had a kind of supercharged, uh, a kleptocratic form of capitalism, which actually wasn't very interested in genuine wealth correction. It was creation. It was very extractive, um, dominated by plutocratic elites. Um, you know, the kind of Russian oligarchs fame, as it were. Uh, that was in cahoots with forms of political elites who kind of captured the high ground. And then you also had them mobilizing ethno-religious nationalism and forms of populism. Um, these were not the classic ideologies of the 20th century. You think about fascism, communism, socialism. These these were kind of cobbled together, uh, quite self-interested forms of, of populism. Um, and uh, and a kind of hyper religious diversity as well as you had the the Moonies and the Scientologists and every evangelical mission from Youth for Christ for everyone kind of piling in to to try and win souls for their 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 kind of particular approach, um, and and I thought whoa like what is happening here, uh, and and how does the church navigate this kind of space? And I thought, well, someone must have written on this, you know, that <laughs> something in the library or in, in the cupboard. Turns out the cupboard's a bit bare. So that that's what kind of got me. I kind of fell into doing a PhD, just really trying to answer these questions that the, the, the heart of this book we're discussing today, Christ and the Common Life, which was, you know, how do we respond to the suffering, injustice, um, wounds of the world we see around us? How do we navigate questions of power? And how do we stay true to our confession of Jesus Christ as Lord while also being a good neighbor to those who are not like us? And hmm. part of what came out for me of the Eastern European context was really I was kind of based in London at the time and realizing London over that time was becoming a, a global city or world city. And all the issues I was seeing in a kind of supercharged technicolor version in Central and Eastern Europe were also emerging in, in, in London in a slightly more muted form. So, but they were all present there. Um, and, and really, a lot of my work has been born out of that experience and trying to make sense of that theologically. And how do we draw on the Christian tradition, draw on classical kind of approaches, but also in dialogue with social scientific analysis, political theory, political philosophy, um, a whole range of approaches to kind of give an account of how does one cultivate a faithful, hopeful, uh, 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 um, loving life with others mm -hmm. in this kind of context. That's awesome. I, I, I love all, all the stuff about that. That is so good. 
So I think a, a good way to set the stage here would be for us to think about what exactly you mean by political theology and politics, because I think when we use the word politics just in common everyday conversation, we're thinking about, you know, political campaigns, political parties, elections, backroom deals and D.C. and all this stuff. But you mean something um, much more fundamental in, in, in your definition. So uh, lay out for us what you mean by politics and political theology. Yeah, no, great, great question. So I, I think when we say politics, what what is triggered in most people's minds is exactly what you just said, which is, uh, you know, what takes place in DC, what appears in the headlines of Fox News or MSNBC or, or whatever it is, and and kind of policy wrangling. And and I call that is part of politics, but I call that statecraft. And and so um, there's a there's a dis- important distinction. Politics is a much bigger thing than statecraft. We tend to collapse politics into statecraft. Now, on my understanding of politics, it's a very ancient understanding, and, and we can look at figures like Aristotle, but I think it's there in, in scripture as well. Um, there's really, you only really have kind of four alternatives, four options. If I encounter someone not like me, or with whom I disagree, how am I going to respond? And, and because we are, as Aristotle said, political animals, and, and it, it meant very simply, I can't survive, let alone thrive, without others. We we just are interdependent, mutually vulnerable creatures. So if I'm going to feed myself, shelter myself, get on, I'm going to have to have some kind of common life with others. And then in the formation of that common life, I'm going, there's going to be disagreements. And there's really only a couple of options. If I disagree with you or don't like you or or encounter someone not like me in in the process of surviving and thriving, I can either kill you, I can either create a structure of and system to coerce you, or I can kind of create a system which forces you to flee, uh, or you know, I I can be the subjective one who has to flee. Or you can do politics. And politics at its most basic, which we've lost the habit and vision of thinking about it like this is the negotiation of a common life amidst conflicting visions of the good, i.e. how should we live together? What is the vision of human flourishing we're working towards? And trying to negotiate asymmetries of power constructively without killing, coercing, forcing others to flee. Um, and of course, human history is littered with those uh, contemporary politics is littered with the other three options. Think of Syria, think, of, you know, there's myriad options. America at the moment, there's plenty of people who would prefer three, one of those other options. Um, you know, the, those fleeing persecution and turning up as refugees are subject to one of those options. So, uh, and, and so if we're thinking about politics, politics as statecraft is focused on the, the structures and mechanisms, law, government, bureaucracy, party systems, this kind of stuff, which enable that common life to be sustained over time. And, and so that's that's a very important bit. But that isn't doesn't exhaust politics. Politics is also the relational practices, practices and craft for sustaining and forming a, poly, a common life over time. And so think about a church. So in a, a reformed church, there's a presbytery and there's a minister or pastor. 
do we keep the pews in or not? You know, not an uncontentious issue in many a local parish um, or, or, or church. Um, you know, so there's a there's a there's a common life here, the church. There is a vision of the flourishing of what it means to be a good Presbyterian working in a particular tradition or a good Baptist or whatever it is. Um, and so then we've got we have to negotiate whether we keep the pews in or not. Is that contributing or is that acting against what the flourishing of a Baptist means or a flourishing of a Presbyterian means? Um, there's asymmetries of power. The pastor or minister has one kind of power. The elders and laity have another kind of power. That has to, has to be navigated. And of course, there's ways, various ways they can go. There's plenty of church history where we end up killing each other over those kinds of questions, not perhaps taking pews out, but certainly doctrinal questions and other moral and political questions. Uh, there's plenty of where we create systems of coercion, inquisitions, etc., where we never have to listen to others. So we've got plenty of examples in church history of people uh, either creating systems where they don't have to listen to and creating coercive structures, the large sways of the Anglican church history or inquisitions or whatever. Um, and then obviously schism is, you know, we force people to flee or we split, we don't, we run away, we don't want to deal with them. Um, so, you know, or there's a form of ecclesial politics. And so if you think about that church context or a couple of other examples uh, think about um, nomads in the desert. There's no state around. There's a shared good, access to water. The use of hospitality and other customary practices and rituals enable the navigation and access to this common good of water. Um, and, a, and a shared life emerges around that that ensures their their survival and, and thriving in that context. Or it happened the other day, kids out on the street making a ruckus and a noise, I can either call the police on them, i.e. I can either invoke statecraft, or if there have been relational practices and there's some kind of relationship there and an ecology of trust, I can go out there and say, hey, guys, like my kid's trying to sleep. Do you mind keeping it down? And we're navigating a shared life in the, in the neighborhood without recourse to, you know, statecraft interventions and as we all know that doesn't necessarily go well particularly if you know people are black or brown or whatever um so you know so i think that's that hopefully gives some sense of what i mean by politics how it includes statecraft but distinct and then political theology in many ways is just theological reflection on that it's it's most simple i we can tell i can go if you like a, a, give a kind of genealogy story and give some of the intellectual history of how the term comes about but at its most basic, the church, Christian theologians down the ages, and it's there in scripture, have had to think about questions of the forming, sustaining, and norming of a common life. And, and that's written. And, and I would also say, in relation to the political theology piece, and this is the point I make in the book, you know, we cannot understand important things about divine human relationship apart from talk of politics. So it's not for for with with an axe. It's not accidental that the writers of the New Testament turn to political language, sovereignty, liturgia, ecclesia, uh, episcopate, like presbytery. The, these are all of uh, uh, kind of Roman or Greek political terms to name and define crucial aspects of divine human relations. And so, so part of what well, the argument I lay out in the book, and, and I think is true more generally, is that 
talk of God and talk of politics are always co-emergent and mutually constitutive. We cannot talk of God without talking and using political terms, sovereignty, etc., Lord, etc. And equally, we cannot talk politics against, you know, much against the modern imaginary of politics in this kind of secularist frame. We cannot talk about politics outside of the use of theological terms. And there's kind of historical reasons for that, but I think also politics is always laden with questions of ritual, questions of meaning, questions of metaphysics, you know, that whether it's Christian theology or some other theology, there's always ontological and metaphysical kind of frames of reference to make sense of political life. So there's a there's a there should be a healthy traffic between politics and Christianity. Um and and we, we can never be outside of that and the New Testament isn't and nor should we be. So so talk of kind of, oh, Christianity should be avoid politics. This, this is kind of nonsense talk. It, it doesn't, it's not, this is not serious talk. Like it, they've never thought seriously about the text they, they claim to read, you know, closely. Yeah, that, that's, that's helpful. I, I like the way you've, you've kind of painted the picture of these two. And it seems almost that you've talked of recovering an older way of using politics, because at least in my context, it seems when people talk politics, what they mean is the nasty stuff that they watch on CNN uh, between different Congress members or different members of different political parties, where it's it's not this idea of sustaining a common life at all. Mm. It's just, I don't know, <laughs> fighting over petty things yeah, uh, yeah. not having any real substance like you've done here. So I'm almost wondering, is it is it more beneficial, I guess I would probably lean this way, to recover that tr- more traditional, more robust understanding of what the term politics means? Or should we just move to a different term because that one can be so confused when used with just most people? When you, when you talk politics, you have to do a lot of work to mm-hmm. explain what you actually mean. I think some people would understand it, but some would just almost for, they would ignore what you're saying just because of the terminology. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I, I mean, I get, I get what you're saying. I think the distinct, I mean, I obviously I argue very strongly for recovering this more ancient and robust and kind of substantive understanding of politics. And I, I think once one lays it out, like, you know, not all politics is statecraft and, and give some of the examples I've just given, I've never had anyone go. I don't understand what you're talking. About. Like it, it doesn't. You, one doesn't need a PhD. Like it's a very basic and simple. And but and and the reality is that's how most people live their lives. That's actually how most people live. You know, whatever their ideological commitments, whatever whether red or blue or whatever. And and so it's. I think it's important to keep it because it names something and recovers something for people uh, that helps them give speech to a way of acting in the world, in their neighborhoods, in their regions, whatever, and a way of resisting false scripts that lots of people are making lots of money getting them to conform to. And, you know, let's not forget, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC, these are, you know, profit-making ventures, and one might say and they serve a good purpose in, in some ways in terms of we need news agencies and this kind of stuff. Um, but they they have a particular angle to to tell us that we are locked into red and blue or we're locked into this highly polarized world and that that is reality and it's not reality when the hurricane comes through in my neighborhood or this as you know you live in north carolina this weird and bizarre 
uh, form of uh, a, a kind of weather, a freezing rain, something I'd not encountered before I didn't, came to North Carolina, which is the most bizarre and paradoxical thing. <laughs> it's even more paradoxical than three in one nature of the Trinity. Um, <laughs> and uh, and, it, and it, it, you know, my electricity goes out. Um, the guys in my cul-de-sac, we, we're very different politically and different religiously even. We've got a gas stove. So, our, you know, we are able to cook things. Either we muck in all those other factors. Well, I <laughs> refuse them. I, you know, coerce them into not approaching. You know, there's the other options kick in at that point for me. Or I do politics where we've we got to survive and thrive without electricity. We've got to get it together and, and, and navigate that. I don't really care what they vote at that point. Similarly, when the hurricane comes through. So, so I'm like, the reality of life is this kind of vision of politics. I, what I want to give is return to people a, a way of naming that that is empowering and recovers back from a way in which they're sold a script, which actually isn't true to their experience. But then they increasingly conform to, and we see that with conspiracy theories and all the rest of it, in a way which actually is shattering families, shattering churches, deeply destructive of our common life. Um, and it's based and it's not true. And so I think there is something very important there. And I, I think the other aspect of that is I think going back to what I said about scripture and, and making sense of if we want to be faithful readers of scripture and make sense of the theological inheritances we curate and hand on, we can't see this language. It's just written into the fabric of our how we relate to God, the prayers we say. So if we're either going to kind of be entirely illegible to ourselves and our own traditions and histories, or we need to recover this kind of vision of politics. That's awesome. So I think that goes along with this next question, as well as the book that is fairly recent that you've come out with that I, I want to make sure to plug, Christ in the Common Life, uh, Political Theology and the Case for Democracy. I, th I think it's really well written, and I think it's just it's fascinating and stimulating. And I like books that cause me to think, and I right. think this is one of those. And I think what is really interesting that you've done here is the first part of the book, you set up some case studies in political theology. So you've got several ones here, humanitarianism, black power, Pentecostalism, Catholic social teaching, and Anglicanism. And each you know, have their distinct contributions. And obviously, I'd love to talk about them all. <laughs> I don't think we have time to discuss what are these distinctives and their contributions and how do they emerge and take shape in the space of this episode. So maybe we stick, uh, let's start with humanitarianism. And then one that doesn't get its own chapter, but I think you weave it throughout is a probably good segment of our listeners. Probably I'd say 60% of our listeners are in this broad reformed evangelical right. type context, whether that's in a Baptist church or in a Presbyterian church mm -hmm. or in some cases, an Anglican church. So maybe talk to those two. What, what, do they have distinct contributions, competing visions, those types of things? Yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll come on to the second one, and, and we could get some questions specifically about that. I, I mean, I think beginning with humanitarian piece, I, I began with humanitarianism and, and partly moving between the kind of European context and the American context. I think there's a kind of default position um, both in evangelicalism, uh, but also in more kind of progressive mainline type church circles, that neighbor love, and remember, 
one of the arguments I'm making is that we need to think about neighbor love as a political relation. And that's part of the, part of the argument of the book. But, but to kind of get into that, I had to do some ground clearing. And I think when, when you say, rather like you say the word politics, it conjures up certain things. When you say neighbor love, it tends to, for most modern hearers, conjure up a kind of humanitarian social imaginary that there's a kind of ecumenical niceness, you know, and, and there's a sense of, you know, soup kitchens and um, mercy kind of pastoral care initiatives um, and, uh, you know, just home, you know, mission trips to um, Guatemala or Ghana um, to help rebuild, rebuild schools. And this fits into like a long trajectory from the kind of 19th century onwards uh, of a, a, a kind of, you know, in many ways, it's a, it's, it's the most influential modern revolution. You know, the, the, I would say the most significant modern revolution was not the communist revolution, the revolution in Haiti, the American revolution, French revolution. These are often pegged as, you know, def definitional modern moments. Um, the Russian revolution uh, actually it was a revolution in sentiment and, and the sense that I should have a care for the other, not just for the brother. And and if we think about most forms of solidarity um in human history, they were quite local. They were they were kind of tribal. They were sense that you were connected um to people around you in some way. Um, and we see that extended in notions of nationalism and this kind of stuff. Um the humanitarian revolution and born out of a whole range of movements modern philosophies, we look to sort of figure like Immanuel Kant, um, but also the abolitionist movement and, and the anti-slavery movement was the first kind of global social movement and in which evangelicals, Hannah Moore and others were absolutely key uh, to, to it. It was in many ways led by evangelicals. Um, this, this poses a kind of revolution, and, and I think you can point to Methodism as key in this as well, the revolution in sentiment that uh, I should have a care for those not like me and who live further away, far away from me, uh, and that a kind of pastoral duty of care is what neighbor love looks like. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. I think it morphs into I, what Didier Fassin, who's a French kind of social theorist, identifies as, as the kind of primary form of political theology in the modern period, which is humanitarianism. And it has its own institutions, UN, UN declarations, uh, humanitarian agencies. Uh, think about Samaritan's Purse, you know, millions and millions of dollars go into this uh, every year. Um, and so there's all, there's these institutions, there's legal codes, there's a, there's a whole kind of political framework attendant on this political theology of humanitarianism. And we tend to think of it as either secular or there's a kind of Christian version of it. Or if we're going to do humanitarian work, we need to kind of conform to this political theology. And so I'm, I'm trying to, in the, in the chapter, I kind of lay out how there's actually both a tension between quite a kind of what might call a kind of imminent political theology of humanitarianism and a robustly Christian understanding of what it means to respond to poverty. And one of the problems with humanitarianism is, is it claimed to be apolitical? And on the evangelical side, that's like, well, this enables us to do social engagement without being political. So it's not controversial. Uh, and on the kind of progressive side, uh, you know, or, or kind of 
liberal f- philosophical side, it's you know it's apolitical, it's neutral. Think about the Red Cross; you don't make any um, kind of political interventions. You're completely neutral between ideologies, and this has got them in huge amounts of trouble. Whether under the Nazis, when they knew about the concentration camps and didn't say anything under the guise of neutrality or famously in the Biafran war in Nigeria where they knew about starvation, didn't say anything. And this gives birth to a whole new development of development agencies, Médecins Sans Frontières or, or Doctors Without Borders and this kind of stuff, who see themselves more in the code of mode of witness and advocacy work, but still claim a neutrality, claim to be non-political, this kind of stuff. We're just a witness. We're not campaigning. Um, and I think this is very problematic because one of the things is it, it, it's a refusal to engage with the asymmetries of power. And the, one of the, the the majority way poverty is talked about in in the scriptures, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament, is uh, as an, ani and at various other Hebrew terms, but the sense of powerlessness, those without power is the key term we can think crucially the story of Exodus. And and there the problem is not I don't necessarily have enough food to eat or shelter. It's I don't have the power and I'm completely acted upon and don't have the agency to act. And that's the problem with the widow, the orphan, the resident alien. They live in dependent relations. And so that's why they're subject to particular kind of strictures and, and demands in, in in kind of Old Testament codes. Um so yeah, so I think that I think there's a there's a problematic default imagining of neighbor love in humanitarian terms. That itself is a kind of imminent political theology, which is in some ways anti-theological. I won't say it's anti-Christian, it's anti-theological. It's not robustly theological. Um, and itself sub- suffers the tragedies that Christian forms of care are always having to navigate, which is you in the very act of care, I only I only intervene and care for others if I kind of genuinely care for them. But in that very act, I'm often acting in a way that either takes away their agency or claims to know better how they should live. I become a kind of self-righteous vanguard determining how they should live. And so the problem of paternalism, the problem of unaccountability, think about aid agencies and running refugee camps, they they are the government, but no one elected them. They just turn up with a kind of technocratic expertise. And then there's problems of asymmetry. The the refugee worker's life is more valuable than the refugee's life working in the camp. So they've always got to save and feed and look after the worker rather than the refugee or the person subject of care. So there's a inequality built into the very structure of care. And that's I think that relates to all forms of care. That's not unique to and this is a problem the church has wrestled with um for eons. So so I think there's it's, it's just kind of alerting people. People have kind of cuddly feelings about humanitarianism. And I'm just trying to say, look, there are lessons to be learned from Christian here in history about the nature of care and its tragedies and conflicts in a fallen world. There is a robust vision of Christian care that's tied into questions of agency and political structure. Uh, We shouldn't divorce pastoral care from politics. And let's not think neighbor love is reducible to humanitarianism. I was just curious what you think are like maybe the the most 
like key challenges that we're facing in you know America 2021 on sustaining this common life. I heard you um, on another podcast talk about declension narratives versus ascension narratives, and I think you really hit on something there. Um, these are kind of two different ways of of viewing um, how things have gone and how things are going. So the declension narrative being you know, there used to be this golden age and now everything is just deteriorating right before us. And then there's the ascension narrative that things used to be totally rotten and now we're progressing out of it. But then the problem is if you see everything through that lens, it's not going to work because things are just much more complicated than that. So I, I I thought that was super profound when I heard you say that. I do think that is one of the key challenges. So maybe speak a little bit more to that and then talk about any other challenges yeah, yeah. that you think we're facing. No, it's a great way into something of our context. I think one of the so in in the book, I kind of try and develop a, an understanding of conversion that kind of runs through it, and that's the background theological notion that I think we need to recover. We we tend to think of conversion as a kind of Jesus in me. You know, I've said the four spiritual laws, or I've you know, um, kind of said the sinner's prayer, or whatever it is. And obviously, that's you know. Personal salvation, personal relationship with Jesus Christ is is key, but I think that's a very truncated, rather narrow vision of conversion. It doesn't, if we look back to patristic thought and, and the reformers, um, that's not their vision of conversion. It's a much more robust. And if you think about the theology of conversion, embodied in something like baptism, you, at a personal level, you you simultaneously recover a self that's been lost through sin and idolatry so there's a restoration there of something that's been lost and you're born again you're given something new an eschatologically given self um through the spirit uh and so there's a rupture there's a new beginning and i think part of our problem at the moment in the state and it's it's there in europe as well you see this is is kind of rivered into political divides is this division between where does how do we think of ourselves in time first of all and then secondly where does renewal come from where where is the good place in the sense we're trying to recover and as you said there's one strand of political thinking and kind of political activism which is all about we need to go back we need we need to recover make america great again i.e. the the good place is back then we need to recover that. And, th- and this is ties into and kind of very ancient notions of reformation. It's there in the reform tradition. Renaissance, it's like you're born again from the past. Very ancient, ancient Greek, ancient Roman ideas of a kind of golden ageism, which we're in declension from. That was a stoic idea that somehow we need to we need to recover or in a cycle of either you know decline or ascension to that good place in the past. Um and uh, and so that's one strand of thought, but but the problem with that is, of course, um, it's it, there's there's this paradox which, in all modern conservatives, you see it in Burke onwards, all modern conservative movements, in the very act of conserving and seeking to recover, they're deeply innovative and they're deeply they're creating new things, and that's that's you know a, a kind of I think a structure of reality. Um, but equally, on the other side, we have this notion of um, we need to leave behind the past. We need to have a revolution, a, a rupture, a new beginning, and all that is good is in the future. And so we need to progress. And if we see this in this terrible 
metaphysics is kind of philosophy of history. Are you on the right side of history? As if if you're on the wrong side, all that's in the past, we can't learn anything from the past. That's just patriarchy, heterosexist nonsense. We need to leave it all behind. And then there's the kind of what's good is in the future. And so we we have this deep bifurcation. Either all that's good in the world will cut is going to come into being and we're going to progress into it, or le- and through leaving behind the past and the dead hand of tradition. And that's a very enlightenment idea. Or we've got to go back. And again, there are streams of conservative enlightenment thought, which which also kind of head in that direction. I, I just mentioned Edmund Burke as one. Um, and I think that neither of those are theological. Uh, and I would say both are kind of anti-Christian or, or anti-Christic. I would put it as strongly as that. Christ is the Alpha and Omega, and Christ is the center of history. And all history is defined in relation to Jesus Christ. That surely is a Christian confession. And so any story of reality that is not thinking itself as in time or is in relation to Christ is anti-Christic. Um, and so what does that mean in practice? Well, it means that Christ and the Spirit are at work in all ages, and all ages need conversion or reform or renewal in Christ. Um, and so the sense that somehow the 1950s world was a particularly good time in human history, which obviously thoroughly ignores Jim Crow and all the rest of it, or that the future is going to be somehow better and more sparkling and wonderful than the present, and that there won't be equally fallen and finite and tyrannous forms of life in the future. And as we see with very modern progressive ideologies, communism, uh, you know, et cetera, uh, look at Pol Pot, look at Killing Fields, Mao's uh, a, a kind of um, cultural revolution, the Stalin, the, the carnage done in the name of progressive ideals. Um, and, and my distinction for this is a slightly kind of flippant one. But I think, you know, if reactionary conservative ideologies tend to operate with a slow violence over the long term, but pile up the body on body, progressive utopian ideologies tend to operate with fast violence and pile up the bodies in quick succession. Um, And I think we can kind of do a read of 20th century kind of history along those lines. Um, It's both of both have carnage written through them because both are fallen, finite, ridden with ideologies. Uh, uh, And so this is, you know, and this is, I would say, you know, it's a good Augustinian reformed insight. They're, 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 you know, and, and then the question then is, how do we imagine and narrate the cultivation of a flourishing, flourishing life that is both attentive to what needs curating from the past and needs carrying over and tending and handing on, and what needs to change because it's oppressive, because it's tyrannous, because it has excluded people who actually should have a say. And so we that shouldn't cause anxiety for Christians, but it does seem to cause anxiety for Christians. Mm-hmm. And they either you have a progressive Christians who are going, you got to get rid of, you got to just cut completely cut loose from the past, or you have more conservative Christians going, oh, the future is terrible, when these people want to take over and destroy America. And I'm like, this is not just wrong. Like you read the New York Times, this these people are silly. I'm like, no, this is a Christological <laughs> question: Who is the center of history, and what is history for? Is it for Christ, or if you if you think that your particular petty ideology, whether of the left or the right, 
is going to inculcate the kingdom of God, you are much mistaken. And no human penultimate ideology will do that. And anytime you think it will, or you think it's the object of salvation, Donald Trump will save you or whatever, you know, only Christ can save us, <coughs> excuse me, and only Christ and the Spirit can usher in the kingdom of God. And so there's a sense in which we do have to secure penultimate goods, decent water, education, health, the rest of it. There are legitimate divisions and disagreements about that. If you're operating on this bifurcated view of history, it's not simply that I've got a disagreement with you about graduated tax policy or how we should set up our sewerage system. These are penultimate questions, which we can have, you know, some say more market, some say more state, some say let's, you know, do this and the other. And they're different, they're legitimate, you know, prudential judgments to be made on that. If I say, no, my economic policy is a question of whether you're on the right side or the wrong side of history, or whether you are for America or against America, then it's not, I don't have a political disagreement with you. I've got a metaphysical disagreement with you. And that's how I think at the heart of our problem in America today is that people are over-invested in politics. We need a penultimate vision of politics as a negotiation of a common life around penultimate goods um, and how we coordinate pursuit of the common good with pursuit of the kingdom of God. And, and instead, we've got this kind of apocalyptic frame on all sides whereby Everything is about pursuit of the kingdom of God. And if I compromise at all, or I see someone on my side compromising, they're a traitor and they've sacrificed or compromised the very end of history. And that's crazy. But it's deeply anti-Christic, I would also say. I would make that stronger claim. Mm. Well, that's that's good stuff. I, I think this this is a great vision and it's really refreshing to hear um, how to think about this from this perspective. I do want to just pick your brain a little bit on what you think are some of the most practical hands-on ways that individuals can just say, I want to love my neighbor well, but I want to keep my faith distinctive at the same time. How do I do that in this polarized culture? What Are there just easy tips that you, you've thought about that you've seen that have borne fruit over time, whether that's in the Christian tradition or just in these various uh, siloed off traditions that you've, you've studied? Yeah, no, that, wonderful question. I, I think, uh, I think there's some very basic things we, we, we can, can do. Um, I, I think there are broader practices. I mean, something I've written on is community organizing. I think that uh, embodies, I think, a particular vision of democratic politics of the kind I've, I've argued for, and I think is very, nourishing and healthy for a broader reweaving of the civil fabric of society which i think we need to do and but i think in its most basic level one of our crises and going back to brandon's earlier question you know what are the problems we think we're facing as i think is this crisis of social trust um and democracy as really a kind of way of talking about this older version of politics the negotiation of a common life but but one in which we recognize all people should have a say over their living and working conditions rather than just, you know, an oligarch or an aristocracy or whatever. So a kind of democratic vision of the formation of a common life. But that depends on trust. Um, and we've tended to think about, and I'll get to your question in a bit. So there's, there's a circum, circumvent, I'm kind of like going around the houses to get it, but I will get to it. Um, we've tended to think uh, about 
um, things like trust as kind of soft skills or a bit namby-pamby or, you know, what, what's that about? And it's really the, the numbers, I mean, spreadsheets and, you know, or tanks. In mili- uh, the reality is quite the reverse. Trust is the basic ability to sustain a common life. If I don't trust the banks, there's a run on the banks, as we saw 2000, 2008, the economy collapses. Literally, the whole system collapses. Um, and, and, you know, and so we have a kind of massive breakdown and all the social consequences that follow from that. So it, trust is the basis of a flourishing economy. Uh, trust is also the basis of a flourishing political life. If I don't trust you, as we saw on January the 6th, that the election is, uh, well, is true, uh, then I take to the hills with my AR-15 or AK-47 and other bits of the world. Um, and so this paradoxical notion of the loyal opposition, i.e. I'm loyal, even though I'm opposing you, I'm loyal to a basic common life, whether that's a national level or a regional level or an urban level, city level or whatever it is. Uh, and so that depends on social trust, and um, as does the rule of law. You can't legislate the rule of law. It's a, it's a basic question of the increase of social trust. So I think one of the important things Christians can do in recovering this more ancient and robust vision of politics is trust-building measures. And, um, and this, I think, really comes down to something very, very basic, which is listening and asking yourself, where do you begin the conversation? And too often we begin the conversation, uh, you know, you know. let's say I'm very concerned about climate change. Um, I go in and my neighbours who are good hunting and fishing folk, you know, here in North Carolina, uh, and I say, you know, I present data sets and have you read this article in the New Yorker? And, and they quite understandably to, you know, tell me to get lost uh, for completely legitimate and understandable reasons. And that's a terrible way to proceed. Or if the other way, you know, I'm concerned about abortion, and, you know, I begin a conversation with, you know, when did you last kill your child? You know, like or some I'm parodying. But, you know, I mean, there's mm-hmm. lots of bad places to begin that conversation. Sure. Instead, why do we begin the conversation is with someone's biography. You know, tell me about yourself. Uh, what do you love and cherish about where you live if we're thinking about the environment? What, what does it mean for you to be able to go duck hunting in this wood or fishing in this lake? What would it mean for your children, your children's children also have that experience, which you show treasure, which is so important to you as a, as a person and what that, that place of piece of land or, or lake means to you. That's a completely different conversation. We might not agree about, you know, Paris Accords, but I'm not that interested in that. The quality and character of our relation and how we come to think about this shared land of, and, and how we inhabit it together that can incorporate hunting and shooting and fishing as well as, you know, cultivation that forests are still going to be there. Well, that I think that conversation becomes possible at that point. And, and I would say there's empirical evidence to show that is exactly how that conversation goes. And there's, there's various approaches to kind of deep listening and, and, and political work out, out there. And so I think, you know, beginning with biography, beginning with people's stories, beginning with what people love. And again, I would say this is a... It's a good Augustinian reform point. What what is Augustine's point? Uh, politics, as he defines it, building on Cicero's definition, politics is a people defined by their common loves. So if we're not asking people what they love and what they care about, and equally what they see desecrated and tarnished and profaned. So whether that's um, you know a, 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 
you know, here in Durham, a black neighborhood that has been redlined and people's uh, college career that had been sabotaged by terrible schools um, or, you know, uh, someone, um, you know, profiled by policing. There's a grieving. At the great Norse word for anger is, comes from, the, our word for anger comes from the Norse word anger, A-N-G-R, which means grief. And it's what are people grieving which is what have they what love has they lost or what what they love has been profaned or desecrated and i think when we listen to people's stories when we begin with biography rather than ideology or our checklist of positions are we listening for what the wounds that are at work in their life and what they and we don't have to agree with their analysis whether of the left or the right that they how they analyze those wounds, but we do have to rest and abide with the wound. Or what are their sources of wonder? What are their sources of joy? What are their sources of delight? Where do they find meaning and purpose in the world? And, and so that, that listening for wounds and wonder, and, and I think, um, yeah, so I, I, yeah, so I think, I think we can begin conversations there. And those are, reweaving the ecology of social trust is i think the most basic thing we can do and and it doesn't demand that i become a new york times reading theater going liberal to do that i can i can still confess jesus christ as lord and still you know whether they're a muslim seeker or secularist find areas of shared love shared wound shared concern um through which we can build a common life together and, and recognize that there are commonalities here that need nurturing, protecting, fighting for whatever it may be. So I think it's, it, it is a something as simple. And I think that is, goes back and something I argue for in the book very extensively and, and has shaped a lot of my work, which is, do we begin with listening? And it's, you know, by hearing it's a good calvinist frame of reference ex auditu out of hearing we are saved and there's a great line from ambrose of milan that you know the the is drawing on the the um shema uh, from leviticus that you know hero israel and the it's it says the first word the, the uh, i think it's dear christians um fail not and speak not first that you should you should always uh, listen first that you know how to speak and and too often when we're listening to people we have an ideological checklist in our head and we're really listening and we get to item 32b1a and and they go ah, and we have our kind of you know stand mm. and we jump down their throat and that's not really listening i'm not actually listening to who is this before me and and who is this as someone for whom christ died and who I'm called into relationship with. And, you know, whatever their view is, it, am I able to recognize the, the, the places of woundedness and wonder in their lives, however they're analyzing them? Uh, I'd like to ask you one, I know we're out of time, but just one, one final question. And this may seem like a super simple question, but, you know, are you, are you optimistic about the the short to, to medium range future for let's just say America? Um, are you seeing seeds of of these trust building measures or signs that maybe um, more and more people are breaking out of the the short sighted and, and, and shallow ways of, of viewing all of these issues? 
because I know even for myself, I mean, I don't, I not, not at all do I feel like I have <laughs> arrived, but I, I do think that if I look now at how I, you know, try to approach a lot of these issues versus even how I would have four to five years ago, I can see a change in my own um, outlook. And I think it's because I've opened myself up to, to more conversations with folks who, you know, maybe more traditionally would have disagreed with me or still disagree with me on a number of issues. But mm-hmm. on the whole, I just really still feel pessimistic. So maybe I'm just reaching out right. looking for some <laughs> some optimism <laughs> from you. I don't know. So I think um, it's 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 a, it's a difficult thing to answer because I think the you know all age if all ages are equidistant from Christ we'll see shards of good and shards of evil and bad present in all ages it's not so again it's 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 one response to this is to is to slip into a declension narrative or an ascension narrative so I want to avoid either of those options. I think the other thing to say is um, we live in hope, not optimism. And so what is hope? Hope and, you know, adjoining that, the other theological virtues of faith and love is the sense that the present reality doesn't define, the present experience and what I'm seeing is not the true truth. That if Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, that the Christ's life, death, and resurrection defines the beginning and end and meaning of history. And that that whatever I'm the kind of particular historical experiences I'm having now, that that is really the deeper truth that is going on. And I have to live in hope and therefore act in a way that is not determined by the choppy, changey, contingencies of the moment but it is my action and orientation to reality is determined by what i take to be reality which is the life death and resurrection of jesus christ so that's where hope kicks in so i do feel i have had to learn again what hope and faith means in the contemporary context and i think that is this is a discipleship moment for Christians. Do we really understand what hope and faith means and are we going to be determined by reality as you know determined by jesus or not and i think a lot of people aren't you know they frankly do things in the name of christ which are much more to do with immediate circumstances or following their twitter feed than is to do with their hope in jesus christ so i think that's one important kind of theological frame i think the other thing to say is i think um i i do see shards of hope around and and people uh moving in the kinds of ways i've been trying to articulate and and the very concrete forms of that and upside to community organizing is one form of that but there are many other uh, instances out there um the problem is that in they're largely illegible within the current kind of media space social media space which themselves are structured to render the kind of vision I've laying out illegible because it just can't make money off it. You need it, it can only make money off polarization and segmentation and people living in tiny little bubbles and enclaves. So I think there is a kind of epistemic problem to use sorry a horrible academic term, but I think there's a kind of I think there are I think there there is more of this out there than we hear about or I know about. I I encounter it in certain ways. Um 
but I think can we get access to it in a, an environment which is demands a certain way of scripting things and highlighting certain things? That's a different question. So I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, is is our lack of uh, the, our struggle to be hopeful determined by reality or determined by certain scripts we're sold um, and the kind of stru- material structures that we're embedded in which orientate us in a certain way and this is you know this is always the struggle this is the struggle of the prophets you know think about jeremiah ezekiel others the struggle to be are we determined by idolatrous structures of reality that that say peace peace when there is no peace or war war when there needs there's really should be peace um that the call honey bitter and, and bitter honey and that that's a you know line from isaiah um you know, and 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 so that can we actually cut through that to actually what's going on and the ways and people are actually cultivating a common life along the lines I've said. So I, it's I find it hard to answer that question because I I do see this in certain places, but I'm also aware of the kind of material epistemic conditions of life, which want to determine that this can't exist and want me to buy into a reality in which this is impossible because that's how they make money off me. Mm. to put it horribly crudely, but I think that yeah. is the yeah. case. Yeah. Now, this has been an absolute delight. Uh, <laughs> I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I just Googled, and I think we talked about it before, you've got a podcast. I don't know how long you've been doing it. Uh, do you want to give a 30-second yeah, plug for it? I'd love to. It? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, this, is, this is a great segue from the last question, actually. I mean, one of my concerns was precisely the church's struggles with exactly this question. And so the podcast is called the Listen, Organize, Act podcast and available on all platforms. And I interview folk working in different communities across America, often in marginalized uh, uh, and kind of struggling communities, just where the church is central to that work and who are doing just wonderful, amazing stuff. And it's very practical, as well as kind of covering some of the grounds we talked about here and and other scriptural and philosophical frameworks. But it's very grounded in how do you do this kind of politics and what are the mechanics of that? And and each episode, I cover a different topic. So we talk about, you know, the relational meeting as a kind of listening practice and how you do that, the house meeting. And, And it's often rooted in stories of actual people doing this work. So it's very much out there as a resource uh, to help church leaders, congregants, kind of seed an imagination for the kind of politics I've been talking about here. So, yeah, thanks thanks for the reference. I, I, I do commend that to, to folk um, as, as a real resource of stories of people doing this kind of work and very practical, grounded versions that cut through a lot of the kind of flim-flam um, that, that we're surrounded by. Awesome, and it looks, and you're also on Twitter, uh, West London Man, which seems very on brand from just <laughs> the little that I know of you. <laughs> so, go go follow him on Twitter. Go check out his podcast um, and check out the book that we've been talking about, Christ in the Common Life. Uh, I think it uh, obviously just through this conversation it casts a vision that I think no matter what your commitments are underneath that, there is a shared vision of all the Christian tradition of wanting to seek this love and flourishing of others. So I I commend it to you. Go check it out, get a copy of that, and then check out the podcast and follow along with his work. So Dr. Brotherton, this has been a ton of fun. We thank you for coming on. And for everybody who's been listening, you have been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. (laughs) 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.